January 3rd, 2022, in Masechet Let's start again from six lines, if you can, from the top of the Amud. Gemara, right in the middle of the line, Tanya to Beraita, which could, for our purposes, stand alone. Initially, says Rabbi Yose, reflecting and remembering the way it was before his birth, there were not many disputes, not many halachic arguments amongst the scholars and people of Israel. How would they determine law? As we mentioned uh, last week when we learned this, the Gemara in Masechet Hagidan Daftetzain, where Rashi locates one of the first mahlokot, uh, Tosafot in turn cites from Talmud Yerushalmi with regards to Shammai and Hillel themselves we're dealing with three or four mahlokot maximum their students Bet Shammai, Bet Hillel of course there's dozens of mahlokot so the statement in turn is Lo marbin. there weren't many mahlokot how would matters be uh, determined how would they be decided Ela of course you had the Sanhedrin the Betin Hagadol sitting and residing in a place called Lishkat HaGazit, half in Kodesh, half outside of Kodesh, but primarily at Makom HaMikdash, and then adjacent, close to that Bedin HaGadol, as we described in our Mishnah, as we described already in the Gemara once, there were two other Batedinim of 23, which of course is the Bedin, the requisite side for, size for Dinene Fashot in order to judge life and death circumstances. Where were they residing? Where were they uh, sitting? Had Yoshev al Peta Harabait, Had Yoshev al Peta Ha'azara, one at the entrance to Harabait, that's the mountain on which the Mikdash was built, and then another one further up at Peta Ha'azara, at the entranceway to the Azara. So there were these three primary and central Bate Dinim, right at Makom HaMikdash. And then additionally, in all the significant cities of uh, Am Israel and in Eretz Israel, you had Bate Dinim of 23. So you had many of those all around. What's the significance of this? Significance of this is when there was an issue, you went to the Beit Din and they were able to adjudicate, they were able to determine what's the law. If there's a question that necessitates a question, uh, if there's a ne- that necessitates an answer, you would go to the Beit Din of your city. If they had a tradition on this matter, they would respond. If they knew the halacha, they would respond. If the Beit Din in your city didn't know, Interestingly, the Beraita throws in an extra betin, as we mentioned last week, that one that's adjacent to your city, uh, not per se, certainly wasn't mentioned in the context of the Zaken Mamre. Harambam, when he records this, leaves out that detail, but the Beraita has, you go to the nearby city first initially, ask their betin. They also don't know, you go to the betin, that's at the entrance of Harabait. Im Shem'u, if that next and third to last betin knows the law, and you say at that time. Now these words as well are curious, because really all we're dealing with is a question, right? Throughout this Beraita, we're dealing with 
I don't know what the law is. In our Mishnah, in our Subyot, in the Gemara, until now, we've been talking about this Zaken Mamre, the person who's determining and ruling other than the Betin, Betin Hagadol. And he's saying, this is the dispute I had, my opinion as opposed to the others. That's not really what we've been describing. But for one reason or another, the Beraita then has these words over Ve'omer, Kachtarashti ve'kachtarishu haverai. And again, Harambam takes out these words as well when he records this. Kachlamadati ve'kachlimmedu haverai. Here's my take on it. There's that, their take on it. Uh, the way it's recorded over here is it's the person who's asking the question. Uh, it's an interesting uh, point that you make, I assume. In other words, are we really now going to believe this person as he comes back? Now, he's not per se, I, I should just add, he's not per se going to return and tell them the answer and it's going to be based on his testimony. There would be messengers. There would be messages that were sent from place to place. But it does appear as if it's the person who was questioning, who's the one who's now going to the others. And instead of just sending a letter, instead of just sending a messenger, let the person who has the question go and search for the answer. If now the Beitin al-Peta Harabayit know the halakha, if they had a tradition, they say, the Sanhedrin, the Betin Hagadol, are sitting there and ready to deal with cases, and dealing with cases from the first sacrifice in the morning, Tamit Shal Shachar, until the final sacrifice, communal sacrifice, the Tamit Shal Ben Harbaim. Again, the significance, as we mentioned last week, is you're dealing with Avodah Shibadin. You oftentimes assume worship is specifically the words or the sacrifices that we offer up to God, it's furthermore, significantly, deen, justice, righteousness. It's the significance, A, of having the betin hagadol at makom hamikdash, and furthermore, there are times of dealing from sacrifice to sacrifice. They're bookended by, this is how we worship God as well, by dealing with people, by setting forth a proper and straight path. On Shabbat and on Yamim Tobim, they wouldn't be in their regular place. They'd be outside of that regular place. One of two reasons Rashi suggests, as we mentioned. Either Rashi says it was very safuf, it was very busy on Shabbat and Yom Tov, so they needed a new location. In Amen, Rashi says that other reason that I'm about to mention is the Ikar, it was to make a point to the people. We're not actually sitting in order to judge. You don't have judgment on Shabbat and Yom Tov. The Mishnah, the Gemara, Masechet, Betzan, Daf, Lamed, Vav, going into Lamed, says you don't do that. Rabbinically speaking, it's prohibited. There's a fear that you'll come to write. We don't do Deen on Shabbat and Yom Tov. So maybe they switched the place for that reason. Either way, you slice it. They moved their place on Shabbat and Yom Tov, and they're not sitting for Deen, but they're still sitting. There's a point to be made. Sanhedrin, Betin Hagadol, is in its place. That's what we are as a nation with regards to our worship of God in the truest sense. If the question was asked of Sanhedrin, of Betin Hagadol, if they know the law, if they didn't know the law and they weren't able to re- respond with the tradition, we saw those words later on, ironically. We saw those words with regards to um, when the, the rabbis were residing in uh, Lod, in Bet Nitzab Sheba Lod, if you recall, the Gimarandaf, what was it? I, oh, earlier. And the Gimara earlier, and the question was, 
Um, when do you say When do you say that a sin is so severe to the extent that you have to give your life up in order to not transgress it? Transgress it. And the halacha was determined. Why do I mention it? In times of severe significance, we need a vote. We need the rabbis, the scholars to get together and to determine based on minyan. They'd, they'd vote on this matter, of course, after deliberating and determining. Depending on the majority opinion, tameh or tahor is the way that the Beit Din Hagadol would in turn report back to this questioner. Ironically, the Beit Shamayim Beit whom we know and love as we should, but their proliferation, the fact that there were so many of them, and they didn't, the words of the Beraita, not mine, heaven forbid, the words of the Beraita, they didn't do shimush kol tzorkan. They didn't uh, deal with their rabbis and their teachers in understanding and deriving and remembering the law appropriately. Rabu mahloket Israel. Their in turn proliferated dispute, arguments, and disagreements with regards to halakha v'na'asid, and it became as if, not actually, it appeared as if the Torah is not one, but rather two. There were two opinions and more about everything. From there, from Betin Hagadol, they'd write and then send out, as I mentioned to you, Nathan, earlier, uh, to all other places. They didn't just speak and verbalize the Pesach to this individual asking them. They sent out, Kol Mishu Hacham, and at lastly, says this Beraita, you want to know who is appropriate to be a Dayan? It's the type of, the, the, the following typology. Number one, he should be wise, a hacham. Shval berich, shval berich, berich is your knees. It means his knees should be low. In other words, he doesn't hold himself high. He has a modesty, has a piety. Vedata beriot nohahemenu, and lastly, people find him to be a pleasant person. They want to talk to him and they'll respect him. So primarily and fundamentally he has wisdom. Secondly, the way uh, Ben Ishchai, as a matter of fact, on this Gemara interprets it, it says the next one is in order to aid his knowledge. If you're not a person who has humility, you're serving your own mind and your own intuition as opposed to truth. And so as a result, you have to be shvalberich. You have to be a person who has modesty, who doesn't assume you know it all, will listen to others, and will have an open mind to determining this. And lastly, with regards to people uh, uh, listening and appreciating what you're telling them and instructing them, you need you need proper character traits and characteristics so that people find you pleasant and want to listen and talk to you. That personality should be a judge. Misham, if you're successful in your city and they're searching for a replacement, someone passed away, something happened in the, one of the other, but your next stage, again, there's going to be other stages, you're Dayan in your city, but you want to move up in the ranks, you go to, of course, the Betin Shal Peta Harabait Misham, if you're then moving up in the ranks and there's an opening in the other Betin, La Azara Misham, if you're the truly successful and they're still searching in Betin Hagadol, you go Lishkat Hagazit. So that's the statement here with regards to this Beraita. A few more comments in the Gemara with regards to character traits. Now that we talked about the character traits requisite for a Dayan, 
Let's talk generally speaking. Those are not character traits only for judges. That's not only people who are determining law. Those are character traits to a certain extent that we should all possess. There was a message sent from Eretz Yisrael. The Gemara earlier in our Masechet, Masechet Sanhedrin, and Daf Yodzain said, anytime the Gemara uses those words, it's a reference to Rabil Azar. Okay, those were code words for to be al if you recall. That's the Gemara where there were several statements when they used, who's it referring to? Shalehumitam is code word for one reason or another, as they sent tam in Aramaic, we switched the taf with Hashim, means sham from there, and it's a reference to the bil azar. Okay, anyway, here's the statement. Ezehu ben ha'olam haba, who's a person who merits Olam haba. Of course, the Mishnah in the last chapter, in the last parak, will tell us, the interpretation has to be either uh, it's an exaggerated statement. It means what's the optimal way of living. It's just a way of articulating it. Or alternatively, means not an easy track. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean you're going to have to uh, have that. You're going to have that swift entrance over here. Who's going to have the swift entrance, so to speak? You want me to be more elaborate? I can't be. I don't know how it works after that. But that's 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 the alternative interpretation. But anyway, who is that person? Who do we look at? And we say that's the ideal. That's the person who lives. The life as the Torah, as we should be living, anvitan, it's a person who has anava, it's a person who has modesty. Uh, modesty as opposed to haughtiness, as opposed to being ge'eh, is one of those that Harambam says, Harambam says in his Hilchot De'ot, Harambam adopts the, um, the Aristotelian um, doctrine of the mean. Doctrine of the mean means, according to Harambam adapts it and understands it to be a Torah concept as well. It means a person should calibrate, should be weighing their characteristics the way they act at all times. You want to be in the middle path. The Shivil Hazahav, the golden path, Harambam refers to it as. Um, but says Harambam, there are specific character traits, two of them, that never should be even close to the middle. They should be on the extreme distance from any involvement with that character trait. They are anger, and haughtiness, that's what Harambam says. Anger and haughtiness are the ones that distance yourself altogether, whereas stinginess is sometimes appropriate, and sometimes you want to be, generally speaking, in the middle, that's where you'd like to be. Uh, when it comes to these two, and anava, again, modesty, he points to Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, the, the, the attribute that the Torah tells us about Moshe Rabbeinu at the end of Parashat Beha'alot is that he is anav me'od, he is very modest, more than any other person. That's the way it's got to be, says Harambam. Similarly, anger, very much so. Distance yourself fully and completely. It's a person who has anava ushval berech. It's along the same lines. It gives it a little bit of a different character. It means your knees are low. It means you don't stand up tall. Shaif ayal, shaif venafik. Shaif means you, you tilt yourself down, you bend down. When you go in and when you exit a place, you're kind of slouched over. It doesn't mean that your posture can't be upright and proud, but it means the type of demeanor you have as you enter into circumstances, as you leave them, should be one where your head is a little bit tilted over to the extent that nobody looks at you and says, that's a proud person for the wrong reason. Vigaris beoraita tadir, person who's a ben ha'olam haba, is studying, learning Torah constantly. Does that mean that there's no room for working? Does that mean that a person, the only person who merits this ideal stature and status, is they're studying Torah constantly? I think not. 
I would suggest Garis Boraita Tadir means that's your mindset. Your mindset as you begin your day and you live through your day is I'm studying Torah as often as I can, as it's Kefiye Choltor, the words of Harambam in Peregimal of Hilchot Talmud Torah, Tosafot in Maseche Berachot, which I love to, to, to repeat. Questions, why is it that every time you eat in the sukkah, the appropriate fruit foods on sukkot, you make another berachav leshev basukkah. Whereas every time you open a book or listen to a class during the day, you don't again make the berkota Torah. We say them once in the morning and the chalas. Why don't we say it every time? Maybe you should be saying it every time. What's that? Says Tosafot, the difference, they said a little bit more technically, but that's the point. Says Tosafot, when it comes to Torah, it's very different than Sukkot. The mandate, the mitzvah with regards to Torah is that you have your mind on it. And as a result, even if consciously, even if in, in, in your conscious mindset, I'm in the middle of doing, I don't know what, selling or buying or whatever it is, Okay, but in your subconscious, we call that latent awareness, that's what's, that's what's there. And as a result, there was no real hisse hadat, our assumption is, and therefore you're making birkota Torah just once. That's garis boraita tadir, a person who lives a life in such a fashion is studying Torah constantly, but I wasn't actually listening to the class, I didn't have the book open, but that was a fulfillment of it. That was kefi yecholto, and that in turn is that ezu ben olam haba velo mahazik tibuta lenafshe, but there's a there's a, um, a, a a distance from self-centeredness to the extent that you aren't mahazik. You don't in turn hold on to goodness for yourself. Is literal translation. You don't assume you're better than others because you live this life. You don't uh, describe and understand internally or even with your words yourself as being greater than others. It doesn't mean, and this is important, that you don't understand who you are. That's very significant. It means that you don't in turn assume you are better. You say I have greater potential, and as a result, I'm able to achieve more. It doesn't say you don't assume you're a nothing that's not a mandate that's not but the, the concept is you don't put yourself in your mind and in your words above others it says the Gemara Yahavur Beh Rabbanan Enehon Enayhon the Gemara says as, as this was being recited in the Midrash keep in mind we're studying Torah here once upon a time these words are being recited the rabbis are deliberating the teacher is explaining them and so this is being recited someone comes in he's quoting from and as everyone hears it, everyone looks at this rabbi, he's the one that they're describing. He's living that life. We can only imagine the colors that he turns. If a person who is that has that sort of modesty and piety and approach to life, can't imagine what he's feeling in the moment as everyone's looking at him. All right, says the Gemara, Hazar le'iro veshana. If you recall our Mishnah, which described this situation we've been talking about, will a little bit more of Zaken Mamre. The Torah described the person who's the rebellious elder. He's disagreeing with the Betin Hagadol. He's rebellious in his going around after convening with them, discussing with them what the halacha is. He still stands strong. Not only does he stand strong in teaching, he instructs. He tells others. To others to follow a law different than the Betin Hagadol, and or he himself does so. Tanura Banan Beraita will explain to us a little bit further. The only time the Zakin Mamret not is wrong, but is put to death, gets mitathenic, gets strangulated, is if he not only explains and disagrees with Betin Hagadol, but he is, he himself does 
based on what he said, or, or alternatively, He doesn't just give classes on the matter, he gives classes and he says, I'm not speaking theoretically, I'm speaking practically. Everyone, this is the law against Betin Hagadol. In that circumstance, and specifically under those uh, um, conditions, is he considered a Zaken Mamre and put to death for doing so. Says the Gemara, let's just pause for a second and think about this. I understand when he instructs to others, we look, take a step back and say, did you hear what that guy was telling people? My goodness, that's a Zakin Mamre. He's disagreeing with the Beit Din Okay, so he gets put to death for it. After all, what did he do? He's speaking words, Zakin Mamre. What if he's going against Beit Din Hagadol and acting? That was the other potential condition. In that situation, he doesn't need to be a Zakin Mamre. If we're dealing with a sin that's liable for death penalty, he's going to be put to death as a person who's liable to death penalty. He's walking out of Beit Din HaGadon, go through any of the sins that we mentioned, the last two Amudim, last Adaf and a half, and he's going and he's instructed, but not just instructed, he's doing those things. He gets death penalty because of that. So what type of description is this in the Beraita? You want to know one of two circumstances where he's considered Zakir Mamre, and because of that he's put to death. If he's instructing others, okay, I understand, that's a novelty. Even though he didn't do something that ostensibly is liable to death penalty, he's put to death. You can't be telling people to do that. But the circumstance, he did something based on his judgment, I get put to death because you went against the law. That's it. It's not because, per se, you don't need to go all the way to him disagreeing with Beit Din. That's what the Gemara is questioning. Says the Gemara, Bishlama, I understand, when he's instructing others, and they do based on his instruction, in that circumstance, initially, before he opened his mouth, he's not liable to death penalty. He hasn't done anything wrong. By opening his mouth and instructing others, okay, the Torah says you get put to death. Was, that's, that's, a, that's a novelty. I, didn't, I wouldn't have known he's put to death. But the other type of situation, when he's doing based on his instructions, He's immediately liable to death penalty. It's not, okay, we judge him and determine he's a kin mamre, therefore he's going to be put to death. I never want to put any, we never want to put any of these. We want to keep people alive. But he's liable to death penalty already. That's what he's doing. So it's not because he's a zakin mamre, it's because he's a, a purposeful transgressor of the laws of the Torah. So that's the Gemara, okay, let's, let's break this down. Let's break this down. If you're dealing with a situation where he's telling others that you can eat, rather, he's doing against Betin Hagadol, eating helev and dam. Helev are forbidden fats. Blood is the forbidden blood of animals. That's, in that situation, it's a pasuk in Vayikra Perikimau that it's forbidden to eat helev and dan. That doesn't come with the death penalty. Since he's doing it against the instruction of Betin Hagadol, liable for death penalty. If it was outside of that situation, he's a yo-yo like me and he's eating helev and dam, he's getting lashes. The fact that it's under these conditions of disagreeing with Betin Hagadol, the great court, then and only then is he put to that question. That's not a that deserves It is. Yeah. He's getting again. Why is it? It's Halev and Dam is liable to karet. He's uh, he he goes and he's instructing for some strange reason that Halev and Dam are permitted. 
And he's eating it himself. Karet, karet isn't a mitat betin. We're not killing him, we give him lashes. None of this is very pretty, but that's, that's a... Why are Chaylev and Dam just parenthetically forbidden? Of course, the Torah doesn't per se tell us. Hanambam in his Moreh Vuchim, when he searches for the reason, he locates that both Chaylev and Dam eating those parts of animals were the ways of the Avdeh Avodah Zarah. That's the way it used to work. We talked about this when we talked about Lotuchlu al-Haddam in Masechet Sanhedrin. That was the ways of idolaters. And in turn, the Torah is distancing us from that. And in turn, the Torah says, we don't do that. We don't have that. They used to indulge in their uh, times of worship of their, of their deities, of their the foreign gods, by eating these sorts of things in these rites uh, that once existed. Does that mean, heaven forbid, that we therefore shouldn't follow these things if we're not threatened by Avodah? No, once it's in the Torah, it becomes a, it becomes a, a staple, it becomes a, an absolute, it becomes an eternal truth. In turn, we've made this point on many occasions, we now search for a reason and a rationale that's relevant to us today. It means to say, at its time, when the Torah was given, this was a way for the people to ward themselves away from Avodah Zarah, but it's God's words. If it's God's words, it has an eternal truth to it, and as a result, you have to be able to, on any of the mitzvot and averot of the Torah, find some sort of relevancy to you and to me and to anyone in your generation. That's what we've discussed, and that's what you'll find all the time. You'll find a development in Talmud with regards to the reason. So, lo tochlu al-hadam, if you recall, the hachamim have a whole different vantage point. They're not contending with avodah zarah, so they have different meanings that they attribute to this, but they keep the halacha as it is. Okay, anyway, so that's, that's firstly says the Gemara, if we're trying to figure out and locate, what sort of situation would you say, because he's zaken mamre, that's why he's liable to this. So we, we found one. We said if he is acting and it's just Haile Vendam, then uh, we understand he's put to death. He wouldn't have been put to death otherwise. But the statement here in the Beraita seems to be across the board. All situations. Because he's doing, put him to death because he's a Zakin Mamre. It's not true. Uh, so you want to say it's only talking about Haile Vendam? The Beraita should have said so. Ela hechad de ore. Says the Gemara, what if his instruction and his action based on it is He says, everybody should be Mahalel Shabbat. He says, everybody should be Oved Avodah Zarah, whatever the situation. And then he goes and he does it. So he's liable to death penalty because he did it. Again, with a warning and all that sort of business. Says the Gemara, so then why, why, is, it, uh, why is he being put to death because of Zakin Mamre? He's getting put to death because... Did he instructed first, then he did it? Let's say he just did it and never gave instructions. Yeah, understood. So the answer is, so the answer is we saw that. It, but, but when we say instruction, we mean he went up against Beit And he says, no, I think you should do this. That's instruction. It doesn't mean he gave classes per se and he spoke publicly. Uh, says the Gemara, here's how I'll distinguish. The distinction will go as follows. If he is, whatever, any of these sins that are liable to death penalty, if he did it in a vacuum, outside of Zakin Mamre, regular situation, he's not disagreeing with Betin Hagadol, just a rebellious person. In that situation, he needs a warning. He needs a hatra'a. A person needs to approach him. We've discussed so many times in Masechet Sanhedrin and say to him, do you understand what you're about to do? Do you understand the death penalty and so on and so forth? And he has to accept it. Then and only then is he put to death. However, when it comes to zakin mamre, in order to be considered zakin mamre, you don't need a, you don't need a warning of that sort. It's a hidush, but you don't need a warning of that sort. We assume your 
of defiance of Betin Hagadol, who told you not, this isn't the law, that counts as your warning. You don't need a further warning when you're in the act at that time afterwards. Oh, so that's the distinction. That's why this Beraita is talking about even Betin. There's a Hidush, there's a novelty. You would have been put to death for doing that under conditions where there was a, a warning. Over here, now that you're going against the instruction defiantly of Betin Hagadol, you get put to death even without the warning, says the Gemara. But there is one. One notable sin. We've mentioned it a good three or four times. Wish I remembered which one. I could point to one or two of them. In Masechet Sanhedrin that you don't need a warning for. It's called Mesit. Mesit is if you bring others, you lure, seduce others into Avodah Zarah. The Torah says, don't have uh, don't have any, any, any uh, compassion upon such a person. We learn from that. No warning necessary. The major exception. So I said, what if the guy was a mesit? Would you say that's an exception to the rule? Yeah, he would have gotten killed even without Zakin Mamre. Or is there some severity added because he's doing it in defiance of Betin Hagadol? Says the Gemara Mesit, de la the person who seduces and lures others into doing Avodah Zarah and other, another into doing Avodah Zarah, where you don't need a warning. What is the added severity we're assuming there is? It could be there isn't. The Gemara assumes there is that in a Zakin Mamre situation he gets treated more severely. He would have been killed anyway. Ikara answers the Gemara, Iamarta. Says the Gemara, the difference goes as follows. Initially, if he was Mesit, he brought another Ta'avodah he seduced them. And bring him into court and say, no, I didn't get a warning. You don't deserve a warning over here. But let me explain it to you. I have a whole explanation. If he brings forth some rash, we listen. Oh, that's why you said it? You never meant that all along? The conditions seem to have... No, you misunderstood. This is all big misunderstanding. I'll explain. We listen to him. We'll, we'll accept, potentially, if he has some sort of explanation to why he was misit. If, however, he's doing against Betin Hagadol, the issue they were addressing was exactly what he did afterwards. He says, no, but I have an explanation. There's no explanation. There's no room for explanation. You had your opportunity for explanation. Betin Hagadol told you you can't do it. You don't understand. It doesn't matter. Ultimately speaking, you went against it. In Mesit, the sin, which doesn't deserve a warning, you still have a chance in court to defend yourself in any case other than when Betin Hagadol explicitly said, this is forbidden, and you went ahead and did it anyway. All right, that's what we have there. Once Betin Hagadol had their declaration, it's closed. So when you had Shemayan Hillel, it was before the Yisrael Yitzhak. So we were talking about that. When we had Shemayan Zaken? Yeah, so... Shemayan Hillel, I'm sorry. Shammai and Hillel had Bate Dinim. Shammai and Hillel, as well, right, they had Bate Dinim, but thereafter there's no Sanhedrin that's operational in their time. At the same time, they worked out and they were working based on traditions because the system had been in place. This is the way the Hachamim describe it to us, to the extent that they didn't. The suggestion is, even if there was a disagreement, Sanhedrin would settle it and was accepted. Again, that's the Hachamim's historical recollection. That's the way they're telling it to us. There is, at the same time, again, I'm leaving the history, I'm, I'm, I'm accepting their, their telling of it. Harambam envisions this breakdown, similar to the way the Gemara seems to be telling it to us, as tragic. We wish we had that sort of simplified system. 
Others, generally speaking, later Jewish thinkers, envision this as not so much tragic, but it ha or maybe there's a tragedy, but it has a silver lining. You now have a discussion and conversation. Again, there's the fear that the Gemara makes clear of Shte Torot. It looks like two Torahs, it throws people off. But you now have an excitement with regards to what is the law. You have an engagement with it. And secondly, you have potentially more of a sense, potentially more of a sensitivity to the people and times. Because now it's developing. Now people are discussing it and listening to the people and so on and so forth. There's dangers inherent in dispute. But, you know, we have at the same time, you know, the, the irony is, is, is not lost upon anyone. The Mishnah in Masechet Avot, which talks about Mahloket L'Shem Shamayim, talks about Ezeh Mahloket Shelo L'Shem Shamayim, Korach V'Adato. It's a terrible Mahloket. What's a Mahloket L'Shem Shamayim, Bet Shamayim, Bet Wait a second, you just told me it was a tragedy. Well, there's something inherently positive about it. But yes, to your point, that's the way the Hachamim remember it. They remember it, and in terms of our recorded evidence of it, there was little dispute in the generations after Beit Din Hagadol and in their vision during Beit Din Hagadol. All right, this Mishnah takes us further along the lines and conversations of Zaken Mamre. It says the Mishnah, Homer bedivre sofrim bedivre Torah, haomer en tefilin kede la'avor al divre Torah patur. So this Mishnah is going to get a little bit more specific about a situation, or as the Gemara will have it, the only situation, or maybe all situations when we're dealing with Zaken Mamre. Let's accept it for what it is initially and then try to elaborate in the Gemara. It says the Mishnah, there's a homer, there's a severity. Something's more strict, ironically, in Divre Sofrim. Divre Sofrim, again, generally speaking, is a reference to rabbinic matters. Over here, we're talking about a rabbinic matter, which is what we call Perush Mikubal Moshe Rabbeinu, which means to say the rabbis have a tradition that this is the interpretation to the Torah. It's not explicit in the Torah, but this is the interpretation they have based on tradition. Not that they're making a gezerah, some sort of gate or takana, some sort of new enactment. This is a tradition. So the one that we're going to be dealing with over here is with regards to tefillin. The fact that tefillin is mentioned in the Torah, we have four references in the Torah. Four times in the Torah, it talks about an ot, a totafot, and so I have four references to tefillin. That's clear. There's something that's to be worn on head and, and arm. But what goes into the tefillin? What are the parchments in our two boxes? Now that's what we call perush mikubam Moshe Rabbeinu. That's a tradition. That's a definition to the Torah which we have based on tradition. That there are four separate um, parchments and, and, and places to put them on our tefillin shel rosh tradition. That's what we're calling divrei sofrim. That there's one parchment with all four of those same parashot in our tefillin shaliyat, we're calling that as well tradition, perush mikubal. So when we talk in this Mishnah about divrei sofrim, we're not per se talking about rabbinic matters, we're talking alternatively about the traditions. How do you know that the tradition, if you recall, good Hazara again, Davdalid in Masechet Sanhedrin, described to us where you might see hinted in Torah this tradition. Again, it's tradition that there's four, something four in our tefillin shel rosh, the four separate um, areas to for four separate um, parchments, or the one with four separate with those same things written on our tefillin shaliyad. If you recall, there were two opinions. Good Hazara, Charles, it'll be a first for you. Um, Rabbi Ishmael says it's because of the way the Torah writes it. Totafot is written without a vav three times. Tote, looks like totefet, 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 and the fourth time it says it's written with a vav totafot. So one, two, three, and the, excuse me, I, I must have dropped the. How did he do this one? 
That adds up to five. I must, oh, it's, what? Two, no, but can't. Oh, it's written three times, thank you. The word totefet is written three times, two times with Adava, Ooh. and the third time, I got nervous, I'm putting a, a fifth uh, in. And, and the third time with Avav, that's the four. Alternatively, to be Akiva said, it was that interesting thing, it says uh, tat in uh, katve, in a place uh, somewhere in the world, in a different language means two, and pat be'afrike means two, and it's a two and two, which adds up to Four. Either way, you slice it. That's the tradition that the rabbis are dealing with regards to this. So, what does the Mishnah say? Let's just read it quickly again through. There's something more strict about the words that are traditional from the rabbis as opposed to words that are explicit in the Torah. For example, in the context of Zaken Mamret, Haomer, if a person says defiantly against Betin Agadol, in Tefillin, Effectively, the guy is going up against the Torah. He's not going against the rabbinic tradition. Patur. He's not considered Zaken Mamre. He's not doing the right thing. Haram Bamre is Perusha Mishnayot on this Mishnah says he might be put to death as a mean, as a heretic, but he's not a, uh, he's not a Zaken Mamre. Explains Rashid because everybody knows it. Zil Everybody knows it. Every kid knows this Tefillin. That's not a threat to our society. Not Zaken Mamre. However, if he says, one of the details, Hamesh Totafot, Sofrim Hayav. If he says there's supposed to be five passages and five separate parchments, that's adding on to the tradition there, and specifically in that type of case, he's Hayav Ezakim. That's more threatening. It's not explicit in the Torah. All right, that's what we'll deal with a little bit more in the Gemara. Baruch Amen.